0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Thursday, January 26th on a bright, cheerful day in San Francisco in spite of the sunshine, at least on the West Coast. In spite of the fact that we are over COVID, or we seem to be over COVID, in spite of the fact that the economic numbers this week, in fact, today, are pretty good for the U.S. economy, in spite of the fact that Joe Biden has kept the United States out of war in Ukraine, uh, Americans aren't happy with Biden. The numbers are actually really poor. He... uh, he averaged a 41% job approval in his second year. Uh, when you look at the the averages, he's down there with Donald Trump. He's second from bottom after Trump, which is quite an achievement, really. Um, and his job approval ratings have been dropping in spite of the fact that things, at least in my mind, seem to be getting better in America. Uh, and when it comes to Average job approval between the first and second years in office, he's way below Trump. He's right at the bottom uh, of the league table. Now, this polling was done, as always, by America's leading polling uh, company, Gallup. And as it happens, one of those strange coincidences, our guest today is the CEO of Gallup, John Clifton, who is also the author of a best-selling book, Blind Spot: The Global Rise of Unhappiness and How Leaders Missed It. And given that he's written this book about unhappiness and the American people seem to be unhappy, what better way to kick off our conversation with John Clifton than to ask him, John, why are Americans so unhappy with Biden? It seems to me, and I'm not, I mean, I'm obviously biased, I'm a progressive, I'm on the left, but we're after COVID. The economic numbers aren't bad. There are no foreign wars. Uh, what, what's going on here? Well, I think there are two things, right?
1: The first one is there are a number of Americans right now that are concerned about inflation. There are a number of Americans that are concerned about issues like the withdrawal of Afghanistan. Um, there are a number of Americans that are concerned about corruption throughout government and have been for a number of Uh, of years, even dating back to the Trump administration, the Bush administration, even the Obama administration. So there's a lot of Americans that are frustrated right now with a number of issues. But I think on the other side of the ledger, if you ask Democrats why or explain exactly why uh, Biden's approval rating is only 41 percent, they might say, because a lot of the times the things that need to be done aren't necessarily popular, uh, but it doesn't mean that these issues don't actually need to happen. Uh, So I think there's going to be a lot of debate on both sides as to why his approval numbers are the way that they are.
0: Well, let's get to the book, John. It was a bestseller, um, Blind Spot, The Global Rise of Unhappiness and How Leaders Missed It. You didn't miss it, a a Gallup. You nailed (laughs) it. Um, Why do people, and, and let's get beyond politics, why, why do so many people seem so miserable these days? People always, I mean, the glass is either half full or half empty, it seems to me. And you can always find reasons to be unhappy and can always find reasons to be happy. Why do people, it seems to me at least, always now trying to present the glass as half full, rather uh, as half empty rather than half full?
1: If you don't mind, let's start with what it is that we're doing And for the past hundred years, leaders have been assessed with traditional economic indicators. We look at indicators like GDP per capita, whether or not countries are getting richer. We look at indicators like unemployment, whether or not people have jobs. But what we don't look at is how sad people are or how angry they are. And so almost 20 years ago, we built indicators so that we could put a number behind how much stress there was in the world or how much worry there was in the world. And now that we've been tracking this in over 140 countries every single year, we see that anger, stress, sadness, physical pain, and worry has been rising for a decade straight. So for those who believe that the pandemic has caused this sort of anxiety that exists in the world today, it exacerbated an already existing, increasing trend. Uh, Now, the causes behind it are a number of issues. Uh, The first one is the global rise of hunger. And again, many people believe that the war in Ukraine has actually caused a global hunger crisis. And if they believe that, they haven't been paying attention. It exacerbated an already existing hunger crisis. We do a project with the Food and Agriculture Organization at Arome. And what we find is that 20 percent of people were food insecure about ten years ago, that number is now over thirty percent, and the trend has been consistently
0: rising. John, can I just jump in on the yeah. food front? Because yeah, do. one of the other modern features in America and in much of the advanced industrial world is obesity. So, is there a connection between the rise of hunger and the rise of obesity? There when is. When it comes to happiness,
1: there is. I mean, uh, one of the this is what we call the dual burden of malnutrition. Because you can see the coexistence of hunger and obesity, not just in the same uh, country, but also in the same household. In fact, malnutrition can happen within obese individuals. And that's one of the reasons that we do see a global obesity crisis is because people are eating the wrong things. And one of the reasons that the global hunger crisis hides in the blind spot of so many leaders is because most people live in countries where obesity is the rising problem, not hunger, Uh, but it doesn't change the very fact that globally we see more people who are experiencing debilitating hunger than we have in the past 10 years. So while we were winning the war against hunger for 40 years, uh, we started losing it about 10 years ago.
0: So moving on from hunger, that's not the only reason. That's one of the, uh, the reasons for this, this global rise of unhappiness. What else uh, is making people so miserable, John, these days?
1: Well, the second reason is global loneliness. And we went and asked a question to the world. And we said to people over the past two weeks, how many people did you interact with? How many friends and family did you spend quality time with? We had people come back and tell us over 100. We had people tell us, 15. We had some people say two, but then there were the people that said none. In fact, we called a gentleman in Canada. And when you conduct surveys, of course, one of the questions that you ask is how old they are. And he said, you know, it's funny you ask me my age because today's my birthday, but you are the only person that I've spoken to all day. And that was just a random person calling, interviewing about his life. But how many people live just like him? We find that it's over 300 million adults don't interact with a single human being, uh, throughout a two week period of time. In fact, last year at about this time, there was a woman in Italy. Uh, the police went into her house because Mm. they were warning people throughout uh, the community about high winds that could actually cause serious bodily harm. And when they went into their home, they found out that she had passed away. And the challenge was not that she had died, but that she had been dead for two years. Um, and no one knew. And And
0: is that, that, John, mostly a generational thing? Is that mostly of those 300 million people who don't see someone for, for more than two weeks at a time? Do they tend to be over 60, over 70?
1: This definitely is generational. We do see that people have the most friends in their life when they're young. And we do see that people who are older tend to have a fewer amount of friends. But the question is, does it need to be that way? Because when we ask adults, especially here in the United States, where's the single place where you're most likely to meet a friend? Again, in their answer trumps friends of their uh, the parents of their children. It trumps religious places, or excuse me, places of worship. The number one place is the workplace. But we still have too many leaders who don't believe that people should make friends at work. Uh, and that's a massive problem. And the other problem you could argue is technology. One of the things about technology is it does cause us to communicate and interact with others behind screens and not as frequently as we do when we're sitting with each other in person, and that's a problem.
0: It's interesting you bring up technology. We've had Sherry Turkle on the show uh, a number of times over the years. She's perhaps the world's leading expert when it comes to the issue of whether uh, AI, whether smart machines can fix loneliness um she's ambivalent i would assume that even a smart machine is better than than nothing in terms of improving people's loneliness we have the rise of these bots these robots which uh keep particularly uh, which are designed to keep old people company particularly i think in japan
1: Well, sure, Japan's taking this very seriously. I mean, this is the second time that they've had a minister of loneliness. But what I had just said is not an indictment on technology. Technology has done wonders uh, for the world, especially in terms of human-to-human contact. Think about telemedicine, for example, that skyrocketed during the pandemic. Uh, That was an incredible feat for humanity. So I don't think there's anyone that's looking back to say, let's return to the Neolithic era. but there is a double edged sword of technology and we have to consider what does it take for us to make sure that we're spending time face to face and not just behind screens for the rest of our lives.
0: OK, so we've got hunger. We've got loneliness. What else, John? So
1: the big one is the workplace. And there is a misery that exists at work that we still have not cracked the code on uh, in terms of you know, just thinking about leaders and humanity. And we find that globally, uh, 80% of people have either quietly or loudly quit at work because of their misery. And if they have quietly quit or loudly quit, the anger, stress, sadness, physical pain, and worry that they experience on a daily basis, statistically looks identical, if not slightly worse than the people who are unemployed. It's a massive finding that I would argue is one of Gallup's top 100 findings in the history of our organization that that kind of misery can exist, even if you have a paying job. Um, And there are a lot of CHROs that I've talked to, and they say, you know, John, we're working on initiatives like engagement, and we think we've got it fixed. Why does this still happen? And I think one of the challenges is, is that a lot of these companies will start to pivot to issues like well-being and yoga mats. And one of the challenges is, is that when you have people working at your company that may not have the materials and resources they need to do their job effectively, as soon as they see the yoga mats roll out, it makes them even more frustrated because they still can't do their job. Um, And this is what's creating a lot of misery because just things like basic needs, like getting them the things they need to do their job, that's the single biggest driver of stress in the workplace and it's not getting addressed. Uh, And a lot of time it's because you've got CHROs that are focused on the wrong things and not getting workers what they need to do their jobs effectively.
0: John, I'm not sure how long you at Gallup have been doing this polling, but it doesn't seem to me as if the workplace has changed over the last 20 or even 50 years. If anything, it's probably less miserable than it was. What has changed? I mean, when you look at your charts, um, there's such a rise of unhappiness. That's that's the blind spot that you guys have seen. Um, what has happened, say, since 2006 to uh, to, to make this radical rise of un- unhappiness? It doesn't seem as if the workplace has changed over the last 10 years.
1: Well, look, there are some workplaces that are getting better, right? I mean, here in the United States, we have seen a massive increase of people who are thriving at work. Um, and I think one of the big challenges is, what you could see is, or consider an inequity in the workplace. And when you have people who are completely miserable at work, and oftentimes that misery is driven by whoever your boss is, uh, and you've got to compare to people who are absolutely thriving at work, I think that deepens the frustration and misery that they're experiencing. And remember this, if you ever think that work uh, is something that's, I, I don't know, some have referred to this as kind of, uh, A mundane or quotidian aspect of what we're looking at in terms of what makes a great life. Remember this, when you look to see how many hours we spend working in a lifetime, we spend roughly 110,000 hours. That's one assessment uh, done in Australia. I looked at the lower bound of what it is, and it's roughly 83,000 hours of a lifetime. That's anywhere between nine to 13 straight years of our life. The only thing we do more is sleep. So how you feel on an ongoing uh, basis at work impacts your overall life. And the last thing I'll say on that, it doesn't only negatively affect your life, it negatively affects those that are around you. We ask people who are totally miserable at work, um, does the stress of work cause you to behave badly with friends and loved ones? And roughly two thirds of them said yes to us. And that's a massive problem. So the misery of work, just because your boss can't email you after five o'clock doesn't mean that you're not taking it home with you afterward and making those around you miserable. So, yes, there have been massive improvements, but from a behavioral and emotional standpoint, those improvements have not been seen uh, at a massive scale globally.
0: John, we've done a number of shows, in particular with my old friend Julia Hobbsbound, who's one of the world's leading authorities now on the shift from uh, the officer's workplace to home on how people's working circumstances have changed. In your experience at Gallup, in terms of polling, are people more or less miserable working from home?
1: Well, I think working from home is creating a paradox. And I would call it the hybrid work paradox or the working from home paradox, which is this. Um, we know from time use studies by the government, there are a number of academic studies, that people who work from home, they do indeed spend more time sleeping. They spend more time working out. They spend more times with loved ones. And we see that they have less sick days at work and it increases fertility rates. All of what makes it amazing is no surprise that there are other studies that find uh, that either working from home or having the ability to do hybrid work is the equivalent of an 8% increase in your pay. I mean, it's amazing what it does. So, why is this creating a paradox? Well, we find that one of the single biggest contributors to what makes a great life is your work. And so, how is it impacting your work? At the beginning, we did see that engagement and well being rose and burnout declined. But that said, we are seeing for the first time in the history of our database, or well, at least in the past, decade of tracking engagement declining, and it's happening seriously with hybrid workers and remote workers, why? And again, that's why there's a paradox, right? Because if it's making your overall life better, but is it making your work life worse? And that's why it's a paradox. Uh, and I think it boils down to communication. There's a great study by Microsoft where they looked at communicating asynchronously. And what they found is what we all kind of had a hunch on, which is the very fact that when we communicate asynchronously, we understand each other less. We get more frustrated with each other easily. And so until managers can improve the way that they communicate with the people that they work with asynchronously, I think all we're going to see is an ever-growing declining trend uh, in terms of uh, worker well-being.
0: Uh, John, I was at the DLD conference uh, in Munich a couple of weeks ago. One of the keynote speakers was Martin Wolf, the economics columnist of the FT. He has a new book out, The Crisis of Democratic Capitalism. It's an important new book. Uh, It's out next month, and actually Martin will be on the show to talk about it in the next couple of weeks. He began his speech at DLD. I'm not sure if he cited Gallup numbers, but he suggested that there is a connection between the crisis of democratic capitalism and this rise of unhappiness. Um, Do you agree with him? That one is very hard to
1: say. I mean, what I... And and let me maybe explain (coughs) a
0: little bit more. What Wolf argued was that with this rise of unhappiness, people are voting for the crazies. They're voting for lunatics, maybe a Trump or someone else who who is simply angry, who is somehow channeling that unhappiness for their own political benefit. So that's his argument that unhappiness makes us politically irrational.
1: I don't like the word irrational because I think a lot of the decisions we make are not irrational, but I do think they are emotional. In fact, our research would suggest that 70% of our decisions are emotional and only 30% are rational. Yuval Noah Hariri says, he has a great quote uh, in his book, Homo Deus. He says, we are ruled by our emotions. And I think that's true. And I think what you see globally right now is there are a lot of people who are frustrated when they don't have hope for a good job and you mix that with hunger and then you mix it with a perceived uh, widespread corruption in the government and business. I think you start to see people who get really angry. I think they get really sad, and I think they get really frustrated. And a lot of times, and in psychology, they oftentimes refer to that as emotional flooding. You see it when there's air rage. Um, And emotional flooding causes us to behave in ways that are unrecognizable to ourselves. So are these some things that are causing people to take to the streets? And by the way, having negative emotions does not always necessarily mean that you're going to behave badly. In fact, there is some research that says that these negative emotions actually causes us to use system two thinking and not necessarily system one thinking. Uh, So there is... it would be fair to say that maybe some of these reasons that makes people very uncomfortable are the reasons that they're taking to the streets or changing their behavior at the ballot box. And there's an academic, George Ward, who's done a number of research on this, and he uses Gallup's negative emotions. And he believes that he can not only predict the outcome of elections, but he believes that he can tie the rise of populist sentiment in countries to Gallup's negative emotions. So uh, there is some research that connects these political sort of changes to the uh, sentiment that people are feeling right now.
0: Well, that's even more important, then, or it makes this issue of happiness even more important. If indeed there is a connection between uh, the rise of authoritarian leaders and global unhappiness, the challenge then is that, and, and you argue this in your book, that leaders should measure and quantify well-being and happiness. So, How, how do they do this, um, John? Is, is this formal quantification? Um, do they need to get into the Gallup business? Maybe they need to hire you guys.
1: I, you know, I'm laughing because doing this is not that difficult. I mean, it's really amazing what people will tell you if you just ask them. Uh, for every speech or every group that I've ever interacted with, it's, it's amazing how fast the audience turns into methodologists and they're curious about how we do this. It's also amazing how little they challenge much of the data they consume like unemployment. And it surprises many people to learn that unemployment is actually measured in a very similar way. The unemployment statistics that comes out by the US government is actually a survey. So instead of asking, do you have a job? We simply ask, tell us about how angry you are. Tell us about how sad you are. And what's remarkable is the candor that people will have with a complete stranger about how they feel. And we see it all over the world. Um, so that's really what we're doing is we're just sitting down and talking to people and listening to them. And the book actually opens up about a conversation that we have with a woman in Vietnam. We ask her about her job. Uh, we ask her about her frustration in life. And one of the questions that we ask her is about how much joy she experiences life. And she broke down and cried. And she said, no one has ever asked me about whether or not I'm happy. And this goes to show that one of the biggest issues that we have in the world today alongside global inflation, alongside a pandemic that just won't go away or war, is the very fact that there are so many leaders in the world who just don't appear to be listening. And people are doing everything they can right now to be heard. Um, And we see that in every single interview that we conduct.
0: You say people are want to be heard they've got social media maybe they're just getting into the habit of being heard and whining all the time so when Gallup comes along it gives them a good excuse again to to manifest their unhappiness what right john do people have to be happy humans have always been unhappy it's the nature of our species why do you even assume that we should be happy
1: well before i get to that i want to
0: answer that question because you, you brought up a great
1: point, which is people have Twitter, people have Facebook, and they are communicating more than ever. I mean, there are literally billions of tweets and texts. And they're mostly
0: whining on them, t- telling everyone <laughs> where they the are. injustice is and who they're angry with and, and how, we need to, how we need to shut other people up for one reason or another. And I think,
1: you know, there was a study that was done by Pew that said one third of all tweets are political. But I think even though, you know, since the Gutenberg press more than 500 years ago to when Marconi sent that first signal across the Atlantic, I think humanity has perfected communicating. But how have we evolved in terms of listening? I think there are two very distinct concepts and I think we're exceeding at one, but I don't think we're doing very well at the other in terms of listening. I think that's a massive, massive problem.
0: Max Weber, the great German sociologist, invented the term disenchantment to make sense of a a post-religious world. Um, Religion always solved this problem, and since the majority of people, maybe outside America at least, aren't religious anymore, do we simply need to reintroduce religion and the idea of heaven and hell if people are to, um, to, to make more sense of their happiness and unhappiness on this earth?
1: Well, I think the question is, what's a religion, right? Um, You know, Yuval Noah Hariri talks about the idea that nations and uh, capitalism and socialism may very well be religions. There are some that believe that this new movement around being woke is a religion in and of itself. Um, And so I think what the reality is, and we see this in much of our research, is the importance of purpose in someone's life. And we actually went out and tried to capture this concept of what Aristotle once called eudaimonia or eudaimonia. And trust me, I've said both words to many audiences and I get corrected either, either way I say it, so I'll use them both. Um, but we went out in the world and asked people about whether or not their life had purpose. And what was incredible is the it was unanimous among the entire world. And we quit asking the question because such high percentages of people were saying, yeah, my life has a purpose. Uh, so I don't necessarily know... Uh, and at Gallup, you know, we are just trying to raise the uh, voices of people all over the world. So we don't necessarily have positions on things about religion uh, or the adoption of, you know, very, various political structures. But I think what it shows us is the very importance of purpose in people's lives. And that needs to be addressed throughout countries and organizations especially.
0: I have to admit, John, I'm not convinced. Most people's lives are purposeless for better or worse. The the, the dystopian vision of this was articulated, of course, by Aldous Huxley in Brave New World, in which he imagined the nightmare of a society where everyone was happy. They took soma all day. Um, Would this world be uh, a utopia or uh, a dystopia. We certainly have the rise of happiness pills. There's a generational quality to this. I think more and more young people are taking pills to cheer themselves up. Uh, Are polls like yours and books like yours perhaps leading us blindly and blind spot into not utopian, not utopia, but dystopia, a world where everyone's cheerful?
1: Well so your original point where you said that you believe that many people's lives are useless don't you think that's I didn't rather... say
0: useless I, there's a difference between useless and without purpose people live and they die doesn't mean they live without purpose but the idea of purpose itself I, to me is is deeply problematic i don't know why they would want to have purpose uh, outside of a religious context which religion solved that one
1: but why would they not want to live in a world without purpose, especially if over 90% of people say that they do feel like their life has a
0: purpose. 90% of people, I think you, you suggested, say that they want their life to have a purpose.
1: No, they, no they believe their life has purpose. Well, then I'm wrong, purpose.
0: Then you're right on that. But <laughs> what does that even mean, have a purpose? Make the world a better place, be good parents, make a lot of money, um, make a lot of noise? I think that's the very beauty of it, right? Which is how you
1: serve your purpose is up to you. I mean, how you and I see our purpose in life is going to be very different. Um, You know, and the other thing is, is that when people talk about the misery of work, I talked to somebody recently and they said, look, John, aren't people miserable because they do a lot of meaningless work? And I said back to him, if that's true, then why is it when we did a global survey and we asked people, whether or not they enjoyed the work that they do. 80% of humanity, it was actually well over 80%, said they enjoyed the work that they do. So if they enjoy the work that they do, yet they're miserable, it means that the work that they're doing is not what's making them miserable. It's something else in the workplace that is making them miserable. So many see that the work they're doing may very well be their very purpose in life or raising a family or giving back to their community. Um, And again, this is why the subjective aspect of this is so critical in terms of defining an individual's purpose.
0: Let's end, John, uh, with Soma, with the idea that um, if you're right and that unhappiness is the defining quality of our age and we need to change it, how careful should we be about doling out the happiness pills?
1: Very, very I, I think when we talk about you know how much meaning is there in tracking anger, stress, sadness, pain, and worry, um, it reminds me of one of the quotes that I think is one of the worst quotes and most misleading things imaginable in the workplace and especially for work people. And it's the quote that says, find a job that you love and you'll never work a day again in your life. Uh, I think it's completely false and I think it's completely misleading because it assumes that work... Uh, means that we'll never have stress, anger, sadness, or pain. And that's wrong. The very definition of work is exerting some sort of physical or mental energy in order to accomplish a goal. So it doesn't mean that there'll never be a total absence of anger, stress, or sadness, but your work, the very soul of that work or job cannot be anger, stress, sadness, or pain. Um, So again, I think negative emotions actually do serve a purpose throughout humanity, oftentimes you'll see uh, that struggling is actually what takes place when an individual is experiencing growth. Uh, So I think we just need to get a lot more familiar with these sentiments, get a better understanding of how the brain produces many of these things, why they cause us to behave and act the way that we do, and I think it'll do a lot of good for humanity.
0: Excellent.